Let's take our Bibles and go to two passages this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8, as you probably already supposed if you'd been with us this year, uh, going through the whole book of Romans. Uh, and then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Romans chapter 8, and then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, thank you, Pastor Mike, for selecting hymns that were very appropriate for our text this morning, and, uh, and the choir, and also the ladies in our special number, uh, all, all wording that underpins the truth that we'll um, continue to understand and apply from God's Word today. All right. Anyone need a Bible to follow along with this morning? Just lift up your hand. Our ushers will be glad to provide one for you. Um, we try to spend as much time as possible in each one of our services in God's Word, the Bible. Keep your hands lifted up high and, and they will find you. Okay. Romans chapter 8 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. There's an old text of a hymn that I was handed about a month ago by way of reminder as we were making our way through Romans chapter 8. Some of the words of this hymn, many of you who have been in the Lord for some time would recognize. It's an old hymn called Safe Am I. And the text just reads, Safe am I, safe am I in the hollow of his hand, sheltered or sheltered or with his love forevermore. No ill can harm me, no foe alarm me, for he keeps both day and night. Safe am I, safe am I in the hollow of his hand. Do you agree with that hymn? How many of you recognize that hymn from your past? It'd be a wonderful one to sing uh, again in the near future. But it's a tremendous text to recall in relationship to the security that the Lord provides us in Jesus Christ that we've been studying in Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? Um, we are safe forevermore in the hollow of his hand if we are indeed in Christ. Your fingers in Romans chapter 8, but as you look at 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, I want to discuss with you the importance of prayer and spiritual safety. Prayer and spiritual safety. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says this to the Thessalonian believers, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapid, rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. By the way, I pray this text every Sunday morning in my time with the Lord. And I would encourage you to do the same. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And then he continues with a secondary request. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, I'm sure all of you um, wondered last Sunday afternoon and evening in the beginning part of the week, maybe it consumed your whole week, um, regarding the tragedy that happened 35 miles southeast of San Antonio in the church shooting 
uh, last week. Um, I want to uh, encourage you to pray this text regularly. We want to be protected from perverse and wicked men who have not faith. And prayer is critical for that. While we enjoy the safety that God provides as he protects us from those kinds of men, we pray the first request, that the word of God would have rapid advance among us. Uh, just simple ways to pray for the spiritual and physical protection of God's people. I want to encourage you too, practically that, uh, especially for those of you who are guests or who are newer to grace, that we have uh, ministers of safety deployed throughout this whole facility and the whole property, each and every service. Many of you will never know who they are. Um, but ever since 9-11, you feel a little bit more secure on an airline, don't you? Because there may be a federal agent, there probably is, in obscurity on that flight. And that gives you a little bit more confidence to get on that flight. Um, we don't have any federal agents here, um, but I want to let you know, we have men well-trained um, and deployed throughout this building for your safety. And um, we're thankful for that. But I want you to understand you can continue to come to grace and worship uh, in safety. But we've got to do our part, right? I think it's, our, it's, it's incumbent upon us to pray that the Lord will answer these two requests um, for our spiritual and physical safety on a regular basis here at Grace Church of Mentor. Um, as we go back now to Romans chapter 8 and continue to unpack uh, all of the layers of spiritual truth regarding our spiritual security uh, and safety in, in Jesus Christ. We've been discussing in Romans chapter 8 a number of questions in verses 31 to 35. And these questions, most of them don't have an immediate answer. Um, and we'll discover two more of those questions today. But these two questions are linked together because both include legal terminology, legal terminology. Let's look at these questions uh, and study them together here for the remainder of our time. Verse 33, who will bring a charge, that's the first legal term, against God's children, God's elect? And of course, there's no answer to that because of the next phrase, God is the one who justifies. When God justifies, there's no one that can bring a charge against his children. Let's continue on here. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? There's the second legal term. Who's the one that casts judgment or declares the sentence? Of course, the answer is, there is no one that, condemn, that condemns God's children. Why? Because Christ Jesus is he who died for our sins. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also continues to intercede for us. Who can bring a charge and who can condemn? All of us, our regularly um, settled in our hearts by the presence of law enforcement personnel, aren't we? Uh, some of you have even told me, even with the traffic policemen that we have to have to provide for your safety, uh, exiting the service afterwards, that 
that you feel more comfortable coming to church because you're not in fear of pulling out onto 306 anymore uh, after church. Uh, the presence of that officer is certainly encouraging. Um, you children, unfortunately, you live in an era where maybe you have a police officer, an armed police officer, that has to patrol the hallways of your school. And uh, as a student, as a teacher, and certainly as a parent, we're thankful for the presence of that um, that law enforcement officer. Um, we're thankful for first responders, aren't we? Um, um, certainly they're getting the attention in our era ever since 9-11 that they, that they deserve. Um, as a matter of fact, if you are a retired or current police officer or fire person, would you stand real quickly? Retired police officer or fire, right? Thank you for your former or current ministry to us. We are certainly thankful for our military personnel who, who protect our homeland, our borders, protect our seas, our skies, and even space now. Um, for their former, current, and future efforts. And um, the, their presence, their presence, right? Their activity, their service, their history uh, brings great security to our hearts and safety to our hearts. And, and, we're, and we're, uh, we're certainly thankful. If you've served in the military, past, present, would you, would you stand, please? Past or present, if you served in the military, we'd like to recognize you souls as well. All right, thank you. <laughs> honor to whom honor's due, as the Word of God says, and we're certainly glad to honor on this Veterans Day weekend not only police and fire veterans, but also military, for providing for us um, physical and practical safety and freedom. And I think it's appropriate to do that in relationship that's all that's gone on in the past week too, in relationship to our present safety, but more critically, as we continue to dive into the layers of Romans chapter eight, and particularly to these two legal questions that are posed to us this morning. Increased security in an increasingly unsafe world settles the human heart and grants us the opportunity to achieve freedom both spiritually and practically, doesn't it? At times, the security and assurance that we are safe have become staples in our culture that have been often taken for granted. That is why we take time to recognize and express our gratitude to those who have helped keep us safe and free spiritually and practically. And certainly that's what the Lord is doing here through the hand of Paul in Romans chapter 8 in a spiritually exclusive sense. We've been discussing the divine layers of spiritual security and safety that we have. And I always qualify with this powerful prepositional phrase, if you are in Christ. These layers of spiritual safety are not yours. If you know a lot about Christ, but you do not know Christ. But these are certainly 
layers of encouragement to those who do know him. I'd like to discuss the first legal question that's posed here now and try to um, help it make as much sense to you as possible. But as it was meant to be a question of encouragement to the Roman people, I trust it's also a question of encouragement for you who are in Christ here, even in our time. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 33, God is the one who justifies. Literally, who will bring a charge against the children who are objects of God's love? If you really understand the term elect or election in the Bible, it's a term of love and compassion. Anyone who tries to preach it any other way is not being intellectually honest with the scriptures. So we could really say, who will bring a charge against the children who are objects of God's love? Who are objects of God's love? This is one of those questions that has been intended again to have no answer. But if there was an answer to be given, of course it's nobody because it is God who justifies. You say, well, pastor, there are many people who accuse or bring a charge against God's children. What do you mean there's, there's no answer here? Sometimes accusations of wrongdoing come to God's people regularly, and, and they really just stand as accused because they're not guilty. But when you come to know Christ as your Savior... Those who are not in favor of your new relationship with Jesus Christ will seek to do a lot of different things to, to, to turn you away from walking with him after you've come to know him. I have heard, I'm going to list out for you numerous ways in which those who do not know Christ bring an accusation against those who do. And these are going to be from my personal pastoral history without using names. A spouse who is yet to know Christ accuses the one who does know Christ by saying this, you really don't love me anymore. That's an accusation, isn't it? Ever since you fell in love with this Jesus, I don't know, I thought I was supposed to be your number one. Some of you have some close friends that you used to do everything with that 1 Peter 4 outlines in verses 1 through 5, and you don't run with them anymore and participate in those dark activities of partying and drinking and um, immoral behavior that's so commonplace among the drinking crowd among those that are addicted to substances and alcohol is their drug of choice. You hear things like, man, you disappeared from us. Dude, you don't, you don't care for us anymore. Why are you even trying to participate in this conversation in our office? You won't even go out with us after work anymore the bars. Nah, you don't care about us anymore. And they're accused. Why all of a sudden 
Are you starting to call this unborn child a baby instead of a fetus? Ever since you came to know Jesus, all of a sudden, you know, we should protect the unborn fetus? It's just a fetus. You're a fool. You're changed. And you stand accused. You know, last Christmas when you came over to the house for Christmas family dinner, after dinner you used to go out to the garage and you used to stand around and you know, shoot pool and and hoist a few with the guys in the family. And you went out to the garage, you shot pool, but what, no more booze in your life? This is your family, dude. This is your family. And you're not going to drink with your family? You don't love us anymore. You're not part of this family anymore. If you're not going to do what this family does, I wake up every morning, a parent might say to a child. And I used to be told by you, as soon as you woke up, I love you. And now, the first thing you do every morning is you read this Bible. You read your Bible more than you study. You read your Bible before you spend time with us. I'm your parent. What's going on? You used to sit down and watch all these TV shows with me during the course of a week. And I know you still watch some with me, but you don't watch all of them with me because you'd rather be off on your device watching the live stream from your church service that you missed last week. What are we, chicken feed? We're your family. This is just what we do. We all know that these are some ways that those who have truly been saved have been accused. And I know they're all striving to bring a balance in their new walk with Christ uh, to their reality in their life. Uh, Yet, as they try to strive to find that balance of loving God and loving men, uh, often they're accused in these ways. And you're thinking probably of many more ways that you've been indicted by friends and loved ones. And you stand practically accused. But I want to encourage you that this is not the type of accusation Paul is describing here in Romans 8. This is not the type of accusation he's describing here in chapter 8. Let me explain. Romans 8 is about life in Christ. We know that by the way it starts and it finishes. It's about eternal life and the layers of spiritual security, both now and especially that are ours after we breathe our last on this earth. The question in verse 33 as to the charge against God's children is of a spiritual nature primarily, not merely a practical nature. It's of a spiritual nature. Literally, who can bring a charge against those whom the Lord has placed his saving love or his saving affection upon? Who can ever tell somebody 
who has been genuinely born again in Christ, that you will never be loved of God for time and eternity. Who can do that? And the answer, of course, is nobody. Why? Because it's God who justifies. It's God who doesn't make you righteous. It's God who declares you righteous in Jesus Christ. So you are safe in the hollow of his hand forevermore in Jesus Christ. God's grace certainly, with the help of his word, the shepherding of the sheep here, the encouragement of your Christian friends, will help you navigate through the various practical accusations you'll get from those around you that are close to you that don't know Christ. They'll help you do that along with God's word. So if the answer was, you know, Pastor Tim, who's going to bring an accusation against God's people, uh, you know, practically? The answer is, well, just about anyone and everyone that can. But that's not the nature of this question. There's no one, no one, no thing that can positionally, spiritually accuse you that you are not loved by God and you're not in love with God. No one can do that. Because God justifies. God loves. God draws. God gifts us with repentance and faith. God renews. God sanctifies. God grows. God receives back unto himself those who are his. And if you'll go back up again, here a couple verses, to verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these who he justified, he also glorified. From predestination to the last, glorified. From eternity to eternity, we discussed a few weeks ago. You are forever secure in Jesus Christ. There is no one that can bring a charge against your positional relationship with Jesus Christ. Go with me, hold your finger here in Romans 8, and let's go to Zechariah chapter 3. Let's look at an Old Testament context now from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. That'll be familiar to a number of you. Uh, Some of you that are newer believers may never even know, and that was a book in the Bible until this morning. Um, But there's an Old Testament picture picture here of the high priest Joshua, and uh, we'll find out something that's been true of all of God's people uh, since God's people became God's people. (laughs) We have an ultimate accuser, don't we? And it's Satan. And he will ever be before the throne of God accusing you that you're not who God says you are. We have an Old Testament example of this. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. I believe in this particular context, the angel of the Lord would have been a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. So he's standing before Jesus Christ himself. And Satan standing at his right hand to do what? Accuse Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel of the Lord. 
He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove all the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let him put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was what? Right? The Lord Jesus who began it is the Lord Jesus who will bring it to consummation. There is no one that can bring a charge against God's children. Not even Satan himself. Not even Satan himself. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. You don't have to go there. There's just a restatement of truth there that there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And when we are in Christ Jesus, he mediates our position before the throne of God. And not even the God of this world Satan himself can have success in his accusations in that environment. He goes on to, and I think this is why they're, they're attached here, verse 34, who's the one that's going to condemn? Well, if there's no one that can bring a charge legally, an accusation, and who in the world's going to give a sentence? Well, there's nobody. Why, why is there nobody? Because it was Jesus, God in human flesh, who died. He was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the whole world. And when you're in Christ, your sin's gone. It's taken away. He took it upon himself at the cross. He took our punishment. And in him, you're washed white as snow. There's no sentence for you. He died, and not only that, he, he expressed omnipotent power over the effects of sin, which is death, when he was raised from the grave. And in addition to that, who is he can condemn when it's Jesus Christ who's by the Father, interceding for us at his right hand all the time? And what's he interceding? His own righteousness. So just like Zechariah chapter 3, he's next to Joshua. He's by Joshua. He's cleansed his heart. Metaphorically, he's shown the cleansing of his heart by giving him festal robes, white robes. He's clean within and without. I have declared it, Jesus has said. And so it will forever be. There's no sentence that can come to someone on whom I've placed my eternal love. I mean, Jesus even told his disciples that in John chapter 13 and verse 1. In their fear, having been announced that he was going to be departing. In their fear, Jesus says, don't worry, fellas. I have loved you, and I will love you until the end of this age. There's no one or nothing that can change that reality. Who can condemn? Nobody. Go with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. What's all involved with the intercession of the Son of God? It's very interesting here. Certainly, 
I believe the context in Romans chapter 8 at the end of verse 35, 34 is, is um, the reality of him pleading his own righteousness on our behalf. But we even find the Lord Jesus Christ's words here being uh, very reassuring as he speaks to his disciples, uh, particularly here, Peter, in, in Luke chapter 22. And let's look at verse 31 together. Luke 22 and verse 31. Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have what? Prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, do what? Strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you may what? Oh, me. Wow. Saving faith really does persevere even though it fails. Because it's, it's sourced in the infinite, omnipotent grace of God at salvation. Even during the time of Christian failure, grace is compelling the Christian life to turn and to trust, to maintenance that fellowship we have with a God of love who's loved us with an everlasting love. And, and we're able to, by that grace and the intercessions of Jesus Christ, to do what? To persevere. We do that. Go over with me to John 17. Um, John um, gives for us here a record of Christ's prayer in the garden before his death. And we find the Lord Jesus Christ praying very specifically for character and spiritual virtue in the life of those who follow him. He says in verse 13, Jesus said, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy and it might be made full in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world even as I am not of this world. I do not ask you to take them out of this world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. What's really wonderful to me in studying the intercessory prayer of Jesus Christ, they really are twofold. He intercedes his righteousness before the throne on our behalf. And then he practically has prayed and continues to pray for our practical perseverance. And he ties that practical perseverance to personal growth in the word. Yes, man may accuse you practically. And how do you survive that? Through a growing relationship with his word and people of his word. Lord, don't take them out of this world. Leave them there. I know it's inevitable. Offenses are going to come, but I leave them there, not alone. I give them the word. I give them the Holy Spirit to indwell them, to illuminate them, to instruct them, and I give them 
the company of God's people, to endure the practical accusations that come along life's way. But positionally speaking, ah, I've got this one all on my own, Lord. There is no one that can bring a charge against God's elect. So there's no one in this world that can prove the righteousness of God's people before God himself but me. I'm the one who granted it, and I'm the one who can intercede for it. Go to Hebrews chapter 7 together. Hebrews chapter 7, as we wind things down this morning. And let's look at verse 18. Many of you who are older in the Lord understand this to be a text on Melchizedek's priesthood being likened unto Christ. In verse 18, the author of Hebrews says, For on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he was offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. This is the answer of the heavenly court. When those on earth or Satan himself try to bring a charge against God's objects of his love, his children, they are, they are forever unsuccessful because of who we are and what God has done for us in Christ. And let's not forget, folks, as we wrap up this morning, go back to Romans chapter 8. Certainly, Satan tries to bring a charge against God's elect in the heavenlies. Certainly, man tries to bring practical accusation against God's elect here earthly. We've talked about the influence of God's word in our lives and the spirit in our lives, and then God's people in our lives trying to help us do his word by his spirit. I just want to remind you real quickly, we not only have the intercessory help of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not forget, even in our own text, in Romans chapter 8, what we studied a couple weeks ago. Verse 26, 
In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to what? According to the will of God. And what is that? The Holy Spirit constantly before the throne of God. Jesus pleading his own righteousness on our behalf. The Holy Spirit pleading before God that we would understand this book by his help, by the help of his Father who knows all things, how to navigate our way through life, which includes the accusations practically of those who are yet to know him that they make against us. And then verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And what's the good? To those who are called according to his name, and the good is defined in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to what? The image of his son. So God causes all these things, even if it includes the practical accusations of the unsaved against you on earth, he causes all these things to work together. For what purpose? God's good, which is what? Which is Christ-likeness. So folks, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect, positionally or practically? (laughs) Nobody. Absolutely nobody. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Some of you have been studying along in Alva J. McLean's commentary on this text. He concludes these two questions with this statement. The only person who can condemn you died for you. The only person who can condemn you died for you. Today you are either his child and you are safe from all accusation because you are in Christ or you are unsafe. And all spiritual accusations against you, spiritually and practically, are legitimate accusations and you stand defenseless because the court of heaven and earth in Christ cannot stand with you and cannot defend you. It always surprises me when you make safety simple for people, practical physical safety simple for people, and they embrace it so readily, right? Your child must have this medicine or this vaccination You must keep your child out of the known world for a year so they're not infected after birth, right? (laughs) So says the doctor who was in the world from birth and he's fine, right? I was in the South recently in in Florida and, and I'm following along an escape route for hurricanes. Those are helpful for people, especially in years like, like this one, right? We used to have fire and tornado drills as students for us and now unfortunately have to start including active shooter drills in our world. We might we try to make the way to safety so ridiculously simple for people because their safety's worth it, isn't it? The God of all eternity and creation has made the way to spiritual safety ridiculously simple. And yet man finds their way out of that simplicity. And it blows my mind that we would enjoy such practical safety physically and yet reject the simplicity of the way to spiritual safety. When he says, I am the only way, I am the only truth, I am the only life, no man comes unto the Father but through me, 
Who of you in this room would stand and say, that's too hard to comprehend? But you say, no. It's too easy of a solution for such a big of a problem. But you would never do that practically. If you're rationalizing that way, you're not safe. You're not safe. All accusations made against you spiritually and practically, you will find your way to be condemned. But the first verse of our text says what? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for yet two more questions among so many layers of assurance and security for believers here. And we're thankful, Lord, that these two are of a, of a legal nature. No one in any celestial court or, or no creature or living being in an, a fallen court of this world, this cosmos, could ever bring a charge or a sentence against those who are beneficiaries of the electing love of God. We're so thankful. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Forever we're thankful that the answer to both these questions is no, because it is God who justifies. It is Jesus Christ who was born, who died, who was resurrected and intercedes for us. There is no one that can touch us who are in Christ with the accusation or sentence. And I pray, Lord, for all those who are choosing at this moment to remain unsafe. I pray that the Spirit of God would arrest their attention, convict them, and make them most um, uncomfortable with divine conviction. And that the Spirit of God would persuade their hearts look under the simplicity of God in Jesus Christ to find their way to sing safe am I in the hollow of his hand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.